Welcome to the Riverview Church Podcast. Thanks for joining us today. Today we welcome back Ash Palmer. But before we get into that, please take a second to subscribe to our podcast. Here's today's message from Ash Palmer. So over the last couple of weeks, we've been going through a series called Wisdom. And the idea behind the series is that it's meant to be bringing uh, practical knowledge to us. And so we're going to continue that series today with a message entitled Wisdom in Times of Injustice. And we're reading a pretty hairy story today, so it's going to be uh, pretty intense. So what is wisdom? I like to think wisdom is knowledge applied correctly. Wisdom is knowledge applied correctly. Many years ago when I first got my license, I kind of did the responsible thing and decided to try and teach one of my friends how to drive. And so we went out into uh, the back roads and uh, she jumped in and put the car into gear. And I said, okay, let's go. And immediately the car started like just bunny hopping. And so I was calmly kind of going, you know, uh, put the clutch in, brake. And she was going, yep, yep, yep. And it was still, we were just going. And now we're kind of moving towards a small ditch. And then so I'm going, uh, uh, brake, uh, brake. She's like, I, yeah, I got it. Yeah, I'm like, brake, brake. Uh, Break now, break. She says, yeah, yeah, I got it, I got it, I got it. Stop yelling at me, I'm going, break, and stop, I got it. And slowly we just fell into this ditch. And I'm like, quiet. And then she looks at me and she goes, uh, which one's the break? And I, you know, wisdom is sort of like that. Wisdom is, you know, there's knowing how to break and then there's knowing when to break. Knowing how to break is knowledge, knowing when to break is Wisdom, right? So wisdom is this idea of knowledge applied correctly. So I'm going to fly through this story today. If you have your Bibles, we're in 1 Samuel 21 and 22. And here's a brief idea of the story. This is a story about two guys who seriously needed like conflict resolution mediation meetings, all right? David and Saul. You probably know the story of David a little bit. If you've been in and around church, it kind of kicks off with him being anointed by God as the next king of Israel, which is kind of awkward for Saul because he's the current king of Israel. All right. And, uh, and David has this young teenage boy, slays a giant in epic fashion, cuts off his head, takes his weapons. I mean, hero stuff. All right. Uh, like standard Denzel Washington kind of man on fire stuff. All right. And, uh, and so there's this epic story of this young kid who from this moment of slaying a giant just kind of gets better and better and better as a military commander, as a kid, to the point where people are like yelling out his name and singing songs about him. And the more he kind of gets uh, popular and famous, the more Saul begins to get annoyed at this guy. And so the first moment where David begins to think, maybe Saul isn't one of my fans, is uh, when David goes to play some music for Saul to, you know, just calm his temper. Because David's just that kind of guy, right? Amazing warrior, great musician, all-around good guy. Uh, well, kind of. He sleeps with another guy's wife, but that's another story, right? <laughs> so he's playing music, and the first moment he gets an idea that maybe Saul isn't a David fan is when uh, while he's playing his, you know, guitar or his harp, uh, Saul throws a spear at him and it embeds itself into, you know, the old school drywall of the temple. And it's at that point that David thinks, I don't think Saul likes me very much. But he says, no, 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 I'll give him another go. And, um, you know, he runs away, obviously. But again, it happens again. And he's sitting there another day playing music. And again, Saul gets so angry. He tries to kill David and throws a spear at him. And David runs away and goes to his best mate, Jonathan, Saul's son, and says, listen, I think your dad 
might not like me. To which Jonathan says, no man, my dad tells me everything. I'm sure he likes you. I'm sure he's not trying to kill you. David goes, look, I got some pretty good evidence that he doesn't like me. I'm pretty sure about this, all right? Jonathan says no. And they come up with this plan, basically, where Jonathan would ask his dad, like, you know, what do you think of David? Kind of set him up a bit. And if Jonathan found that Saul actually wanted to kill David, he'd let David know David could run for his life. And the outcome of that conversation is Saul tries to kill Jonathan, at which point Jonathan thinks, I think David is right. So he goes and he tells David that, listen, you've got to run away. And there's this beautiful kind of sorrowful moment as these two best friends say goodbye to one another and realize that they can never enjoy their friendship well while their dad is like this. So David, this warrior, this guy who has done everything Saul has wanted, who's led his armies into battle and uh, even like paid 200 foreskins for Saul's daughter. That's, that's, a, that's another story all by itself, all right? Uh, crazy story. Can you imagine counting those out? Anyway, so there's this, there's this moment where David does all these, like, I mean, who does that? Who, who collects, anyway, all right? Uh, who does all these things? But David did all these things for, for King Saul and this is how Saul treats him. So if we hit pause on the story there, how would you feel if you're David? If you have to run for your life and go and hide for the guy, from the guy who's done nothing to you except kind of hate you and pursue you and be jealous of you, I reckon I'd feel pretty ripped off. I'd feel like this is unfair. I'd be doing my, like my best Shannon Knoll early 2000 impression. What about me? It isn't fair. Right? I'd be crying, I'd be going, I haven't done, I've done everything. And David legit has that feeling. He goes to Samuel who kind of prophesied over him and said he's going to be the king. And he's like, hey man, this is not what I signed up for. You told me I'd be king one day. I'm getting spears chucked on my head. This is not in the job description. And so Samuel takes David away to the place of the priest and they pray and they seek God together. Saul finds out, he sends people to go and get him. And uh, everyone who goes, like, you know, he sends like SEAL team number one to go get David. And when SEAL team one of Saul's special ops arrive to get David, they burst out prophesying and worshiping God. He sends SEAL team two, same thing. SEAL team three, same thing. Finally, Saul goes himself and God again does the same thing. And Saul ends up praising God and prophesying God when he's come to arrest and kill David. You'd think Saul will get the message, David is not a guy to be touched. But still, Saul carries on. So David decides to go get some help. And he goes to this place called uh, Nob, the city where all the priests of God would be together. And we're going to read a bit of the story in uh, 1 Samuel 21. It says, David went to Nob to Ahimelech the priest. Ahimelech trembled when he met him and asked, why are you alone? Why is no one with you? This Ahimelech is a smart guy. He's a bit concerned by David, the special operative here by himself. David answered Ahimelech the priest, the king charged me with a certain matter and said to me, no one is to know anything about your mission and your instruction. As for my men, I've told them to meet me in a certain place. What's David doing here? He's lying, okay? So David's lying. He says, I'm here on a secret mission. I have a whole bunch of guys hidden away. Can you give me some food? He says, give me five loaves of bread uh, or whatever you can find. I love that sentence because it's very clear that David didn't realize a lie he was telling. He asked for enough bread to feed one guy. He goes, give me five loaves of bread. 
And then he realizes he said there's a whole bunch of guys or, you know, like whatever you can find. And uh, Ahimelech says to him, uh, I don't have any ordinary bread on hand. However, there's some consecrated sacred bread, like part of the sacrifice that we have, that we, you know, we put fresh bread out for God as a sacrifice in the morning and then fresh bread the next day. And it's, it's special. We only have that. And David says, uh, yeah, give that to me. And he goes, well, look, I can only give it to you if you've stayed pure and your men have been holy. And David kind of says to him, look, we have been holy. We have stayed pure, even if like, you know, we do awful things. We've done that well. So Ahimelech goes to get that food. And it says this in verse 7, a little aside in the story. Now one of Saul's servants was there that day, detained before the Lord. He was Derg the Edomite, Saul's head shepherd. What an awful name, Derg. Not Doug, Doug's a nice name, but Derg, Derg the Edomite. So this is why it's important. Derg the Edomite, Derg was not uh, an Israelite. He was not a person who was part of that tribe, but he was one of Saul's kind of leaders, not shepherd really, but probably the more accurate way of reading that is the guy who was in charge of everything he had, like a right-hand man. Derg was in the temple probably to try and make himself pure, like some sort of ritual thing. He was brought into the temple, getting his heart right, maybe to join the Israelite people. Suffice to say, David uh, gets the stuff from Ahimelech. He even gets Goliath's sword as like what's been like what happened just to be stored back there. And he gets all that stuff and he leaves. In the meantime, he kind of gathers uh, the broken men and women of Israel, the people who are in despairing, you know, the, the guys who owed a lot of money. They all gather to David in the hills, kind of like a bit of a Robin Hood moment. And he assembles these soldiers, this little band of 400 fighting men. And then it says this in First Samuel 22. Now Saul heard that David and his men had been discovered. And Saul, spear in hand, was seated under the tamarisk tree on the hill of Gibeah. That basically means that he was holding court, like, you know, spear, like uh, a scepter, like a king would have under this big tree. He was, he was basically like parliament, okay? He was sitting there with his people, with all his officials standing around him. Saul said to them, listen, men of Benjamin. So he's speaking to his tribe. Will the son of Jesse give you all fields and vineyards? So he's kind of, he's a bit paranoid. He's like, you guys I know are on David's side. So he won't call him David. He'll spit out his name, son of Jesse. And so he's, re, he's kind of going, I know that you've all turned your back on me. I know that you're all on his side. But will he do these things for you that I will? Will he give you all fields and vineyards? Will he make you all commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds? Is that why you have all conspired against me? No one tells me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. None of you is concerned about me or tells me that my son has incited my servant to lie and wait for me as he does today. This is like peak paranoid Saul, right? This is a guy who you would expect one of his mates to go, Saul, this guy's done everything for you. Calm down. You expect one of his mates to be like, Saul, you kind of have a Snickers, man. Like just, just. David's on your side. He's done nothing wrong to you. But all the guys are quiet. All the guards, all the right-hand men, all the king's leaders are just quiet. Except Derg. But Derg the Edomite, who was standing with Saul's officials, said, I saw the son of Jesse come to Ahimelech, son of Ahutub at Nob. Ahimelech inquired of the Lord for him. He also gave David provisions and the sword of Goliath the Philistines. 
Then the king sent for the priests, Ahimelech, son of Ahitub, and his father's whole family, who were all the priests at Nob. And when they all came along, Saul said, Listen now, son of Ahitub. Ahimelech says, Yes, my lord. Saul said to him, Why are you conspiring against me, you and the son of Jesse, giving him bread and a sword and asking God about him? For he has rebelled against me and lies in wait for me as he does today. Ahimelech answered the king, Who of all of your servants is as loyal as David, the king's son-in-law? So here we have the priest of God doing what the men of Saul should have done. Speaking up and saying, Saul, come on. Trust this guy. He's your mate. David is the king's son-in-law, captain of your bodyguard, highly respected in your household. Was that day the first day I inquired of God for him? Of course not. Don't let the king not accuse your servant of any or, his, or any of his father's family, for your servant knows nothing at all about this whole affair. But the king turns around to the priests of God and says, you will surely die, Ahimelech, you and your father's whole family. Then the king turns to the guards and says to them, kill the priests of the Lord because they have sided with David. They knew he was fleeing, but he didn't do anything. And then it says, but the king's officials kind of have a moment where they draw a line and they will not do it. It says the king's officials were not willing to raise a hand or strike the priests of the Lord. But then the king turns to Derg and he says, you strike down the priests. And this is where Derg kind of slips under the radar of bad guys. But in this next verse, Derg, ele- Derg elevates himself to some of the, to like that echelon of the most evil people in the Bible. So Derg the Edomite turned and struck them down. That day he killed 85 men who wore the linen ephod. Basically that's saying 85 men who were dressed in service. That's like police officers in uniform, soldiers, like they were there, they were, they were in, they, they were working. He killed 85 men. He killed all the priests in that family. He also put the, the sword, Nob, the town of the priests with its men and its women, its children and its infants, its cattle, its donkeys, and its sheep. Derg the Edomite obliterated an entire town of God's anointed and appointed leaders. But Abiathar, son of Ahimelech, escaped and fled to join David. He told David that Saul had killed the priests of the Lord. If you're David, how are you feeling now? This man comes to you covered in blood after he watched his entire family, his wife, his children, everything he owns, even the animals that have done nothing, slaughtered. And he comes to you with like this token of God, this ephod they call it, this thing that they used to seek God's will. If you're David, how would you feel? David says, that day when Derg the Edomite was there, when I saw him in the corner of the room, I knew he would be sure to tell Saul, I am responsible 
for the death of your father's whole family. Stay with me, don't be afraid. The man who's seeking your life is seeking mine also. You will be safe with me. I think if you're, if you're David at that point, you are filled with rage. This is unfair. This is unjust. This is wrong, right? You would be both heartbroken and guilty at something that you felt you're a part of. But man alive, this is the moment when, you know, I have the tiger starts playing in your head and you're like, where's Dirk? It's on and popping, right? I'm coming at you. Where's Dirk? Right? Hold me back, right? This is David, like, taking off his earrings and passing, like, I'm coming at you now, right? Rolling up his sleeves, right? You and I would go after Dirk, right? We'd go after him. This is evil what he's done. This is unjust. So how does David respond? David, being the mad MC he is, actually writes a song about it. Psalm 52 says, For the director of music, a song of David, when Dirk the Edomite had gone to Saul and told him, David has gone to the house of Ahimelech. This is, if, if I was David, this would be the psalm that I would have narrated by Samuel L. Jackson, right? Because it would not have a lot of nice words in it when I'm talking about Dirk, right? I wouldn't be like, dear Jesus, please help Dirk to not get a good parking spot, right? And somewhere between being mean I would kind of also think that the Bible would also be super Christian about it. But this is what David says. Why do you boast of evil, you mighty man? That's a bit of a sarcastic comment. Why do you boast all day long, you who are disgraced in the eyes of God? I'm like, yeah, David, right, keep going. Your tongue plots destruction. It's like a sharpened razor. You who practice deceit, you love evil rather than good, falsehood rather than speaking the truth. You love every harmful word. Oh, you deceitful tongue. Surely God will bring you down to everlasting ruin. Getting there, David. You're getting there. Keep going. He will snatch you up and tear you out from your tent. Yes. He will uproot you from the land of the living. I love that. Like a tree. Like he's going to uproot you from the land of the living. He's going to kill you. Till you're dead. The righteous will see and fear. They will laugh at him saying, here now is a man who did not make God his stronghold, but trusted in his great wealth and grew strong by destroying others. And then this is where my rage would continue. I'm like hitting second gear now, right? But this is what David does. Watching this guy who's come to him covered in blood of his family. This is where... You wouldn't blame David for shifting to second gear with his anger or his vitriol or his hate or his frustration. This is where you'd be like, go, do anything, man. I forgive you. Make it happen. Like rain fury, whatever you need to do, do you, David. Because what has happened to you is unfair and unjust. But this is what David says. But I am like an olive tree flourishing in the house of God. I trust in God's unfailing love forever and ever. I will praise you forever for what you have done. In your name I will hope, for your name is good. I will praise you in the presence of your saints. I only got one point in the sermon. The point is this. Wisdom is most crucial when you are not obligated to use it. So David has no obligation to be wise. He can be as as unwise as he would like and everyone would be like, you have every right to do that. That person cut you off in traffic, go nuts. That boss fired you for no reason, just yell about how bad he is to everyone else. Your spouse cheated on you, tell everyone about it. 
Your parents are awful to you. Be vitriolic. But David, in words, shows wisdom. But words are easy. So there's David with Abiathar, covered in blood, telling him the story. And then there's this moment where this little town called Keilah gets attacked by the Philistines. And God lays on David's heart to go rescue the place of Keilah. So for his first battle with his new army, he says, let's go. And the men say, we're scared, we don't want to do it. And David says, no, no, we can do it, let's go. And he seeks God again, God says, now go for it, I'll hand them over to you. So David goes there, fight the Philistines, they win. But then Saul finds out where David is and Saul and Derg are coming to find David. And if I'm David, I'm like, yeah, come at me. Me and you, Doug, let's do it, right? This is like Troy, right? One-on-one, I'm coming at you, you and me. This is my moment. This is my showdown. Eminem in the headphones, one shot, let's do it, right? <laughs> and he seeks God's heart and he says, God, if I, if I do this, will the people of Keilah, will they stand with me or will they hand me over to Saul. And God says, the people will hand you over to Saul. At which point, angry Ash would say, then let them lose. Let's not save Keilah. Let's leave Keilah. If they're going to just hand me over to Saul, then let them perish with the Philistines. Let them get punished. And then when Dirk comes, I'm going to take him out. But David, given the opportunity to act unwise, has the heart of God when he realizes what kind of tough position the people of Keilah would be in. And so instead of being angry at the people of Keilah for kind of pre-betraying him, instead of wanting to take the opportunity to strike vengeance at Derg, David saves Keilah and leaves. Not because the people of Keilah deserve it, not because Derg deserves it, but he knows to fight there would put the people of Keilah in danger. And later on in the story, we find this moment where David has the opportunity to kill Saul, the next chapter, in fact, and he cuts off a part of his robe. Where Psalm 52 is the words of wisdom, the story of Keilah is those words in action. Wisdom is most crucial when you're not obligated to use it. So here's what David did. The first thing he did is he got angry the right way where injustice happened. He wrote a song about it. That doesn't mean that he hid it away. It means that it's public. We know about it because David's like, I'm pretty annoyed with what happened. You don't have to keep it hidden down, but get angry the right way. The second thing he does, he gets perspective. He sees the injustice that could have happened to him. All right? He can focus on the injustice of the perpetrator, Derg, but instead he focuses on the injustice of the victim, Abiathar, who's lost everything. And he realizes it's not against me that a sin has been done, but it's against God. And so he checks himself. Nothing feels better than righteous anger. Nothing feels better than when you have a right to be angry, when you have a right to strike out and you know that you can, you know you can get angry at someone, you know you can be unfair. Nothing feels better. That's why everyone's such a great keyboard warrior. I have a right to be offended. Baby, here I go. But wisdom is most crucial when you're not obligated to use it. 
And then David says this, God is my stronghold. Dirk, Dirk's a jerk because he didn't make God his stronghold. When injustice happens, when you have a right to not be wise, you can just do whatever you want because what happens to you is unfair. That's when wisdom is most crucial. You know, injustice has a long shelf life. You can forget about the nice things people said to you when you're a kid, yeah? Because loving words can, they have a shelf life. They kind of expire after a while. You forget about the nice things people said to you. But I bet you, you've all stood in the shower at some point or driven down the road, remembering that unfair thing that happened to you in year three and thinking about really good things you should have said back then now, right? I should have told them this, right? Injustice has a long shelf life in our hearts, which means so does wisdom. It's never too late to exercise that wisdom. So this week, our message is simple. Wisdom is most crucial when you're not obligated to use it. So when you have the opportunity to just let it be, can I encourage you, be wise. Be like Jesus, who in a moment when unfair and unjust things happen to him, it says that he stooped even lower, becoming just like you and I in Philippians 2. You exercise wisdom. Now I'm petrified because I know you hearing this and you're thinking, oh man, something unfair is going to happen to me this week and I'm going to have to remember this message. I'm going to have to do the wise thing. Can you imagine how I feel? I'm the one saying it to you guys. So I'm like, something unfair is going to happen to me and I'm going to have to be all like Jesus-like, right? But that's what we're called to do. Let's pray. God, this is tough. I don't know how David did it. I'm pretty sure none of us can handle injustice the way David did unless we are filled and empowered by your Spirit. So I guess that's our prayer. Would you fill us with your Spirit? So when moments of injustice come, when we're not obligated to be wise, that we would still be wise. Thank you, God, for allowing us to rely on you in those moments. In your name and for your glory. Amen. Thanks again for joining us today. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can email us at podcast at riverviewchurch.com. And if you want any information about Riverview Church, you can find that at riverviewchurch.com. 